Mana 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 this is social disgusting welcome to social disgusting a podcast where my guests and i discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves i am brandon aka brandon hope you're well my guest is a writer whose work has appeared in the guardian vulture vice mel and many others as host of the truly excellent podcast full court chat with dave Schilling, and is currently co-hosting must watch the mandalorian please welcome you guessed it dave Schilling. welcome oh hello i'm i hope that people were trying to guess who's it gonna be who's it gonna be who's <laughs> yeah guess? you know maybe they were thinking oh maybe this is a rope dope but no you know occam's razor it is dave Schilling. <laughs> yeah so it would have been go. great if it was like yeah your, your guest today is jonah hill <laughs> host what? of the dave Schilling podcast that's what? right barack obama <laughs> barack obama is a freak and he's always trying to, to take take my territory get off oh, my man. corner barack <laughs> you jerk God, he's biting your style i know so the very fun question how are you uh i'm i am good i i get this question a lot as everybody does and this is a, it's a great prompt for a podcast because it is a, a question that we all grapple with every day now and it, you can yeah. go back and forth wildly you know your mood can swing significantly in the course of a day but sure. i would say overall this experience of the pandemic because i wouldn't even call this a quarantine anymore because i mean people are going to bars i watched the clinching game of the world series outside in a parking lot of a bar so it's like we're not really trapped inside anymore but uh the experience of the pandemic has been depressing for the, uh, broad societal reasons but my life my actual life my day-to-day -day existence has improved significantly from the day this started to right now really? and that's kind of a weird thing to to grapple with when everyone's kind of miserable all the time is oh my life is actually pretty good you know I, my family <laughs> is good i'm good i can i can pay my bills i'm creatively fulfilled all of those things that a lot of people aren't right now and uh do you feel guilty yes i do feel guilty that I, i'm having a good time and everybody yeah. else isn't yeah i know what you mean though it's like um it's that, that juxtaposition of, like, yeah, I feel guilty for feeling this way, but also, like, thank God, you know? Yeah. Everything is just so difficult. Like, nothing nothing feels terribly easy, or at least maybe it's just not as... The easy things aren't as easy as they, quote-unquote, normally are, because this is also just wild and cinematic and almost, like, fantastical. But, yeah, to your point about, like, it's not really quarantine anymore, like, quarantine feels like it's such a, a temporary concept, and this is so long-term now and for the foreseeable future that it's just like, yeah, this is just, this is just life. You know, quarantine almost gives it like a special term attached to it. No, this is just relative normalcy for the foreseeable future. It's it's wild. Yeah, people don't um, realize how adaptable they are. Yeah. When this all happened, people were kind of like, there was a, a period of it being, um, it feeling uh, odd, you know, it feeling um, like this kind of blip, like this, this significant period of of time like this little this little mini era it's like oh and then it'll be over you know by the holidays and we'll all kind of move on we'll be like oh this wasn't that weird well yeah. the more that you read the more that you hear the more you think about you know how our response to this pandemic has gone the the time it will take to disseminate a vaccine that we don't have you realize oh this is gonna continue to to go on <laughs> i have season tickets for for uh, a soccer team in la major league soccer team and 
they're like, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to start charging you for season tickets for next year. And, you know, we have every intention of having fans in the stands. I, I have a call later today with the Dodgers. Their, their season ticket department is trying to get people to buy season tickets for next year. And in the back of my mind, <laughs> wow. I think, okay, well, should I just keep the money since you're going to give it back to me in six months anyway? <laughs> like, I don't yeah. know what you're going to, are you going to spend it? You shouldn't spend that money because I'm going to get it back. There's not going to be <laughs> sports <laughs> games with fans. It's just like if it does happen, it's going to be a reduced capacity. Everyone's going to be wearing masks. You can't play any games inside. So it has to be open air stadiums for everything. This is just, um, unfortunately, the, the way of the world. And it all kind of happened overnight. Yeah, but no, it's not going away overnight. That's the, the funny thing about it. You know, it's funny that you saying that the Dodgers like calling you talking about tickets for next year and same thing for the football club. But it reminds me of the fact that like literally the day after I graduated from college, I got a letter in the mail asking for money as somebody who is an, what is an alumna, alumnus of the college. And I was like, wow, the second you stop siphoning money off of me, this is when you start asking me for to voluntarily give you money because I gave you money. That's impressive i'm sure it works like the hubris of that choice but um yeah you know i can't imagine i don't know i wonder what that speaks to just like well this is just the process and this is what we do or is it that it's just the the arrogance of baseball i don't know what that is it's fascinating i don't think it's arrogance i think it is a financial imperative these sports teams these sports leagues i think the nba lost over a billion dollars or like 10 percent of their their revenue last year and that was only because it was only 10% because they were able to finish the season and they were able to make up the revenue losses through the Orlando bubble. These teams, these leagues have lost billions of dollars through this. Baseball played a third of the season, right? Plus playoffs? Uh, yeah, 60 games instead of 162 plus the playoffs. And okay. yeah, no no stadium revenue. The NBA, of course, had stadium revenue from beginning of the season through March. And they were going to end their season in May. I think it was May was, was when the season ends. So they, they were able to, to make up, make most of their usual revenue. But... You know, you're not selling merchandise inside the arenas. You're not selling tickets to the games. You're not selling concessions. Like yeah. this is this is devastating for a lot of these teams. Granted, they're all still you know multi-billionaire owners. Nobody is going to go broke from this unless you sell hot dogs or something. But it's still a significant revenue loss. So they're going to try their damnedest to get it all back. Yeah. No. Fair enough. That makes complete sense. And yeah, all they're concerned about is the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whether that's to the detriment of the players, the fans, it doesn't matter so long as they get yeah. their money, and that's all that matters. Because like, even if it's to the detriment yeah. of the entire human race, yeah. oh yeah, there's a reason everybody, all billionaires and people with money, want to get into sports ownership because they do not depreciate. It's a winning lottery ticket if you can get in to one of yep. those, you know, hollowed organizations. Yeah. I was curious about something. I've spoken to people who've written for or write for like, you know, half hour comedies and who write for hour long dramas. But you wrote for the WWE. What is that like exactly? (laughs) You always ask me, what was that like? Well, it was (laughs) the best way to explain it is Saturday Night Live is an hour and a half every Saturday, right? From 1130 to one o'clock Saturday Night Live broadcast live from Studio 8H in Rockefeller Center. That is hard because it is, you know, a lot of time to to kill, lots of moving parts, lots of things going on, Mm -hmm. but they take breaks. They take a month off. They take a couple weeks off. They show reruns. It's 90 minutes. WWE, 
is not 90 minutes every Saturday with breaks. It is three hours every Monday, two hours every Friday, one extra show of pay-per-view once a month every Sunday. So you're talking about, in some cases, eight hours of live television in a week versus Holy 90 shit. minutes. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking a crap on SNL. That's a no, hard no. job. I, yeah. you know, I know people who work on that show, and I know how hard it is. But what I'm saying is you have to look at SNL and how hard that is and say, this is even harder in some ways than that because you're sometimes ripping up the entire script an hour, two hours before the show goes live. As a writer, you are in charge many times of producing the segments, the, the pre-tapes or the, the, uh, the live interview segments. Some writers end up on the headset having to communicate to the referees and, and, the, writer, and the wrestlers, and, and there's just so much that goes into it. There's so much long-term planning that goes into who's going to wrestle who every week, who's going to wrestle in the two weeks from now, three weeks from now. You know, we weren't just writing one episode. We were writing the, the two episodes after that as well. And granted, you know, with WWE, it's significantly less words than SNL because, mm -hmm. you know, you can fill 30 minutes every hour with wrestling if you wanted to. But it's still difficult. It's still incredibly difficult to come up with new things to do when you're on live every week. You don't have the benefit of a guest host. It's the same troupe of talent every week. So you, you, can't, um, you can't mix up the formula that often. It is so difficult to rearrange the puzzle pieces every week to give people a reason to tune in. Yeah. It's very hard. It's unlike anything on TV because it combines athletic contest with sketch writing, with monologuing, with just so many different elements. Um, the soap opera element, it feels like at times. And Yes. I imagine it's tough on top of like the fact, I mean, all of it, but also the fact that you're talking about fans that are extremely passionate and seemingly know so much about it that, yeah, I'm sure it's very difficult to give them something they've not seen to make it and keep it fresh because they know what's come before it. Yes, absolutely. Every time something would come up in a meeting that I had heard before, I'm like, uh, I was, a f I've been a fan since I was eight. I'm 36 now. I saw that. I saw, I saw that. But, and, and that's probably why I'm not there anymore is because I was the annoying guy who was like, we did that already. <laughs> the people who thrive the most are people who are not huge fans. People who have a background in, in soap opera, or reality TV. Reality TV producers and story editors often thrive in this situation because it's ultimately not sophisticated mm -hmm. drama. There's not a lot of work put into foreshadowing or you know emotional motivations for people. It's the motivations for every wrestler are the same. Win the championship and get revenge. And every problem will be solved with a fight. So it's not as though you're dealing with the wide range of human emotions. You are dealing with rage, jealousy, and pure selfishness. Those are, the, those are the three really dark emotions, but those are the three emotions that power pro wrestling. It's all hatred and self-confidence. So, you know, you, sh you shouldn't be surprised that Donald Trump thrived in the world of professional wrestling. Yeah, or that he um, finds a, a light-minded soul in this Vince man. McMahon, and yeah. Donald Trump is in the WWE Hall of Fame. Lord. I knew, yeah, I knew he was on, and, and it makes, like, so much sense, too, in so many different ways, and that he's got a close friendship, if not, like, best friends or something to that degree, like... I don't think any anyone is a best friend of either of those men. 
Okay, I don't believe that enough. the idea of a best friend exists. I think they're they're, they're each other. They're each their own best friends. Yeah, mutually beneficial relationships are all that exists for people like that. They're fair enough. They're mutually parasitic toward each other. Exactly. And <laughs> and that makes so much sense. Admittedly, like I was uh, growing up when I was a, a child of the '90s, I followed wrestling quite a bit for you know a handful of years at least, and. I was really into it, you know, like the Razor Ramones and the Ultimate Warriors and Hulk Hogan's and the big ones, Undertaker, and, and even like IRS, I think it was. Sure. Erwin R. Scheister. Yes. I enjoyed that whole bit very much. I believe that that was inspired by Vince McMahon's own personal problems with the Internal Revenue Service. Oh, of course it was. Because uh, <laughs> he is truly the creative engine. He is a showrunner. He is a head writer of wrestling. And so a lot of his own prejudices and desires and interests and, and frustrations are projected onto the world through the broadcast, through the characters, through the, the situations. What he believes is masculine, what he believes is good, what he believes is right what he believes is fair. You know, if he doesn't believe that you are a good guy because you are, you look a certain way or you talk a certain way or you're too short or you're too fat or you're whatever, then you'll be a bad guy because he's like, you know, this guy, why would anybody root for this person? They're tiny or they're ugly or whatever. Like I don't understand you, so you must be bad. Exactly, yes. That is, <laughs> that is I think, the, the guiding principle of pro wrestling in a lot of ways because there's a lot of history of... of um, xenophobia in pro wrestling, racism, um, mm. use of stereotypes to communicate quicker, you know, faster. Uh, it's faster to, to get someone to boo a Chinese person because they don't like Chinese people. So they would do that stuff all the time because it was guaranteed box office. You want to see the red-blooded American man beat up the foreigner, and that always worked. It doesn't work now, but it did throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, even the 90s. Good versus evil, as base as that is, is a very a very black and white thing. It's very easy to know, okay, well, that is that is bad guy, that is good guy, and you root for one, and then you're vehemently against the other. And I guess that just really resonates with people as much as the undertones are, if they're even undertones, are awful and, and bothersome, to put it lightly. Yeah, well, I mean, that dynamic is why superhero fiction is popular. That dynamic is why, you know, soap operas are popular, romantic comedies. Everything that we watch in popular entertainment is based around the idea of a hero and a villain and the dichotomy between righteousness and evil. So wrestling is the purest expression of that. Maybe superheroes are up there too, but pro wrestling is, is that. It is, these are good people, these are bad people. Even in the 90s when we had characters that were more aggressive, edgier characters like Stone Cold Steve Austin or The Rock, who were antisocial, who were rebellious, who were, you know, not your typical good guy. They were like anti-heroes, right? They were anti-heroes, but they were still the heroes because they were doing yeah. the thing you wanted them to do. And the and the antagonist was Vince McMahon himself. You know, Vince saw himself as a hero, but he played this character, Mr. McMahon. Whenever we talk about, you know, the character, you have to call him Mr. McMahon. You don't call him Vince because it's not the same person, allegedly. Uh, that's not me. But, that's not me. Yeah, I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm playing a character named Mr. McMahon. So, yeah, he fashioned this character of a pompous, arrogant, controlling, narcissistic, corporate monster. And so then he created a stable of good guys 
who were all rebellious and would fight against him. And that worked. But that was a different, it was only just a different alignment of how good and evil are projected. But at the end of the day, wrestling is always about good and evil. But it, but the definition of what is good and what is evil changes based on the times. Yeah, fair enough. And I can see where, to your point of, it's just, there's no reinventing the wheel with WWE. It's some variation of, of the same basic thing. And to where, for somebody like you, who, you know, has been a fan since you're eight years old, where maybe knowing a lot goes against what they want because they don't they're like we're not reinventing that wheel so yeah you know just bring in a reality tv show producer or a soap opera producer and give me melodrama and fireworks and then we're good to go for the next you know 37 hours of programming which is maybe two weeks or something because there's so much of it exactly yeah it's it's bringing in people who can follow orders who can who can work within the the parameters the guidelines and who know how to shut their mouths and be yeah. quiet. Like yeah. being quiet and being compliant is a, a more important skill than being clever. Not that there are not clever people who work there. It's not that you have to be a dullard to work there. Everybody who, who works there is a clever person. They wouldn't sure. have been able to get to where they are without being clever. The difference is you have to have a certain amount of willingness to toe the line. Yeah, it's a machine. This is a content factory. Yes. Be the cog in the machine. The machine, if you become the squeaky wheel in the machine, they're going to cast you out because there's no time. There's no days off. There's no vacation. So you need to just facilitate the creation of the show versus saying, why don't we try this differently? What if we did this crazy thing? What if, why don't we do that? What if they told a joke here? Don't do that. Don't do that. That's my, that would be my one advice for anybody who, who wants to go there is do not, under any circumstances, <laughs> think that you're going to change it. Well, yeah, you, I can see the SNL parallel, parallel in that regard. You know, it's sure. like, don't take the time to ask why we do it that way. We That's the way we've done it. That's the way we do it. Just, now move yeah. on. Yes, please don't ask me any more questions. <laughs> that makes sense. Your new podcast that you have, where you're a co-host, uh, Must Watch, The Mandalorian, giving a weekly kind of roundup of each new episode. I really like the podcast. I was listening to it earlier today. I watched that first episode of The Mandalorian, and I don't know what it is. Maybe for whatever reason, it didn't fully click that first season for me. Although I did like it, and I kind of I saw what they were going for. But I, I don't know. Something about this first episode, this new season, felt like they really got their footing. I don't know what it is. But what do you think of the first episode? I really, really liked it. Oh, I thought it was good. I thought it was fun. I mean, I think this is ultimately a show that is um, most at home doing kind of standalone episodes. You know, it's not... And I use the word prestige to mean a specific kind of complex, emotional sort of adventure story. I don't mean to say that this is is not a prestige show, but I don't mean to malign the show. It's an excellent show, but it is not following the template of television shows that trace all the way back to The Sopranos and The Wire and Six Feet Under, where it's trying to be grand art. The The Mandalorian is very much trying to be a fun, pulpy science fiction show like I grew up with. And that's great. That's what it should be. It's Star Wars. Everything does not have to be gritty. Everything does not have to be sullen. Everything doesn't have to be, you know, tears and all that stuff. It doesn't have to be highly emotional like some other science fiction shows I will not name because I am <laughs> trying to be very diplomatic about stuff now. To be bright doesn't mean it's one-dimensional. 
Yes, exactly. To be happy. Like, gritty doesn't equal yes. dimensions just by default. Just because everybody on your spaceship is crying all the time doesn't mean you're <laughs> making a good show. Yeah, and you yeah. can take that any way you want about whatever show you think I'm talking about. <laughs> Star Trek Discovery. Anyway, well, that's, so... That's what I was wondering, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have to be that. It can just be f- an exciting show. Drama is not people being uh, hysterical all the time. Drama is not about you know monologues and um, and emotions that are not um that are that are explicit instead of implicit you know yeah it's it's about uh all kinds of different things all kinds of different conflicts and the the show the mandalorian is very good at knowing why people like it knowing what lane it's in what box it can be in and executing that effectively week after week that's all that it needs to do and I like that. I like that there's there are overarching mysteries and questions and you know fun stories that they can go off and, and tangents they can go on. But it also just has a very satisfying beginning, middle, and end each episode. And Absolutely. that's what I remember loving about Star Trek. That's what I remember loving about the X Files or Xena Warrior Princess or Stargate SG One. These were shows that were just there to entertain. Babylon Five. And Star Trek Deep Space Nine were sci-fi shows in the 90s that said, ah, actually, what if we did a continuing arc? What if we had a more novelistic approach to things? What if it wasn't pure entertainment? It had more emotional heft and artistic ambition to it. And that was great. And those were wonderful experiences to see that for the first time, to see those shows be very literary and be very clever and to to have some long-term planning. Well... Now every show has to be like that, uh, and <laughs> yeah. that's not necessarily the, the best lane for every property. I don't think Star Trek benefits from a lot of the modern trappings of entertainment. Star Wars certainly doesn't. If you look at the last Star Wars movie, or yeah. Solo, or you know any of these things, like they <laughs> they exist within the world, the era in, in which they were created. Star Trek was created in the late '60s. And it was about things people were considering in the 60s. Star Wars was created in the, the late 70s and has a very baby boomer 70s kind of attitude about life. And to update those and dust them off for today without acknowledging what it is that made those things popular in the first place is a fool's errand. That's, that's why the James Bond yeah. movies have always succeeded in reinventing themselves. It's because every time... James Bond enters a new decade and a new person takes over. It's all the stuff you still liked about James Bond, but they're not like, ah, oh, you know, this is not, this is the 60s, or this is now the, the 80s, and you liked all that stuff in the 60s and the 70s, but we're not going to acknowledge today. Uh, they don't yeah. do that. You know, Timothy Dalton takes over in the 80s and he only has sex with one person because, you know, AIDS was a very serious concern and people yeah. were not engaging in, in, casual sex on the same level at that time. But today's James Bond, Daniel Craig, is very much a product of today while also acknowledging where it all came from. Star Trek and Star Wars, when they fail, don't acknowledge where they came from or what they, why they are the way that they are. James Bond was an expression of the 60s post-World War II Cold War aesthetic, and Star Trek was a product of Kennedy and post-Korean War sort of optimism and social upheaval, the space race, all that stuff. Star Wars was an expression of what was going on in America after Watergate. All these things are yeah. important. Yeah, absolutely. And, 
So sorry, I've been talking forever. <laughs> sorry. No, not at all. This is perfect. But I think to your point about, well, a couple of things. One, about Mandalorian, I think something can be said for a show or a movie, whatever the case may be, knowing what it is. And that show knows what it is and it does it well. And it does, you know, in the Western tropes, even in that first episode where they're about to have like an old fashioned duel and then it's interrupted in a very interesting and playful way that gets that episode onto its next act into its next trajectory. It's re- just really well done. I really enjoy that first episode. And also, so the, I can't speak to how fantastic the score is. The music in that is fantastic. It's it's so, it's good. so good. It's yeah. so good. Ludwig uh, uh, Jorensen, man, that guy. I know he's already won an Oscar, and he's probably what like mid thirties, maybe early thirties. But good lord, if there's ever, I mean, what an amazing choice. I think because not that this is a, a fair thing, and it's not fair to anoint somebody the next whomever. But if like anybody's gonna be kind of like the score based voice of a generation, like it feels like everything is aligning for him to be that person. Yeah, I, it's really impressive that you can create a sonic landscape and and various motifs in the Star Wars galaxy, the Star yeah. Wars universe, because. John Williams created arguably one of the greatest film scores of all time for Star Wars. Like, that movie would have been terrible without that music. Yeah. And you can't say that about the music very often. There are some other movies. I would say Star Trek The Motion Picture would be terrible without Jerry Goldsmith's score. I would say the original Bond, you know, Dr. No wouldn't have worked without the James Bond theme. Various other things. Batman and Danny Elfman. But yeah. this is th- this was able to say, look, we know that this, there's all this music that is iconic, that is Americana now, that is not just Americana, it's, a, it's globally known music. And even though we're not going to use any of it, we're going to try to do something that at least can exist side by side with it. You know, you don't get any of the classic Star Wars music in here. You get the flavor yeah. of Star Wars music. But you don't get you don't get the Imperial March. You don't get the fanfare. You don't get Han and Leia's love theme. Any of that. No, none of it's there. You don't and get the pandering Wars, that is felt in that new Disney trilogy of films. Exactly. It's not constantly regurgitating yeah. John Williams' music. John Williams regurgitating his own music, of course. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, none of that is is here. Even in the Star Trek, the J.J. Abrams Star Trek reboot, you know, they're constantly referring back to the Alexander Courage theme. All the Bond movies are constantly referring back to the, the, the Bond theme music. This is brand new stuff. And it's the, the Mandalorian theme is, is, is one of the, the, the best Star Wars themes now, I would say. It's, it's on, the, on the list. But that's what's so great about this, yes. is it's nostalgic in the right way. Is it's not nostalgic for Star Wars, because that's what the, the Disney trilogy was. It was nostalgia for Star Wars. Do yeah. remember when Star Wars came out in 77 was what that movie constantly kept saying. You go, you want to get TIE Fighters? It had all the depth of, remember Star Wars? Right? Yeah, that was it. That was it. Like, was like that's remember it. Star Wars. That's it. And remember I'm Star like, Wars? yes, I do remember Star Wars. It's on TV all the time. I've seen it a million times. <laughs> uh, I don't need to remember it. <laughs> but what it does, what this show does is it, it's nostalgic for a time when science fiction could be, you know, very plot heavy and not... You know, so so tied into the idea of grand arcs and things of that nature. It's nostalgic for westerns, samurai movies, horror, yes. horror creature-based horror movies. All this stuff that is exactly what George Lucas was doing when he created Star Wars in the first place. Is I love all these things, and I'm going to put them in a in a cauldron, and I'm going to mix it up, and then yeah. I'm going to make this other thing. That's what this show is doing. Whereas it's great. the other. 
Yeah, the other Star Wars things we've gotten have been, remember the first Star Wars movie? Well, what if we told you how they got the plans for the Death Star? What do you think Han Solo was up to when he was a teenager? Uh, (laughs) What if we told you that the Emperor had a daughter? Like, all of this stuff that has has no current modern relevance. It's like very sanitized, like, IP farming or IP mining. Yes. You know, I think that when somebody loves something, when the makers of something, that it's this kind of unquantifiable but palpable thing. And to me, it was made by people that were hired to do a job, like almost like mercenaries, and they're just like, okay, well, what do we know? What are people like? Let's just do that. And there's, you know, I, I think you say what you will about like The Last Jedi, but, and there's plenty to say about it, but I thought it was fascinating. I, I love Last Jedi. I think I love that Johnson movie. is a very, very smart and, and great filmmaker. Yeah. I don't think that it's, I don't think those movies on the whole failed or the trilogy as a whole failed because there weren't enough people who love Star Wars working at Lucasfilm and Disney. Mm. Because let's be honest, everyone likes Star Wars. It's sort of like, you know, we don't have enough people working at Disney who love Mickey Mouse. Like, we all we all <laughs> love Mickey Mouse, you know? It's just That's a fair. thing everybody thinks is cute or, co- or, or cool or fun. It's so ubiquitous and so mainstream. I don't think it's that. I think it's the weight and the pressure of having to execute this is so huge. Mm. You as an executive or a director or a writer are, are told, all right, we're going to do Star Wars again. We're going to do uh, the, the seventh, eighth, and ninth edition of the Star Wars trilogy, or the Star Wars series. You know, we're going to close the, the loop on this story that George Lucas started in 1977 that you remember, that you love, that you saw for the first time in the 70s, the 80s, or the 90s, or whatever. You know, this is a thing that you, you have thought about your whole life. So we're going to finish it, and you're going to help us do it. And if you screw up, millions of people are going to hate you, and it could ruin your career forever. Sure, you're going to get paid a lot of money, but this could be your last big paycheck for the rest of your life. Yeah, it's like, do you want the lump sum of a lottery ticket, or do you want to try to like not do this and then get checks over the course of your life? Because Yeah, good yeah. luck threading the needle and making this work. Look at what happened to Ryan Johnson getting criticized so, so much by fans for yeah. having the temerity to do a movie that he thought would actually be challenging. Or even J.J. Abrams doing the first one, where yeah. fans were like, this is just a retread. Why do I want to watch this? It's it's impossible to please everyone. True. But your job is, guess what? To please everyone. So it's impossible <laughs> yeah. to do that. And I think it's just the weight of the expectations of making the, those three movies, was it was so heavy that there was no way that it was going to work. It's not about winning. It's about less losing. Especially yes. with a fan base that, I mean, it's it's a very entitled fan base. So mm-hmm. in that regard, it's kind of the worst thing you can do is to give them the thing that they think they want. Because then it's just like, oh, great. Now they're supercharged in their fandom and their entitlement toward that. So, yep, billions of dollars are on the line. And yeah. all you all they want you to do is land the plane without killing <laughs> yeah. everyone. Yeah. Kill a couple people. That's fine. But don't kill yeah. everybody. Please. Don't get fancy. Don't land in the Hudson. Just a yeah. standard boring descent and landing i do want to ask you before we wrap up speaking of bond so the movie is coming out next year in theory what is seemingly the last daniel craig movie and this one is directed by Kerry fukunaga i am extremely excited for this one because i think Kerry fukunaga i think he's a fantastic filmmaker and i think he could really make the villain especially very nefarious with some of the darkness he can bring to things like what do you what do you think about that 
Oh, I, I, I think he was a, an inspired choice. You know, a lot of times the expectation is you got to go with a foreigner, you have to hire an Englishman, yeah. or you have to hire uh, an Aussie or, uh, or someone from, you know, one of the Commonwealth countries that is more closely associated with Great Britain versus an American. Because Americans you know, hypothetically don't understand the innate Britishness of James Bond. That stuff, the Britishness of it, is all just there. It's fine. It's the writer's job to figure that stuff out, to mm-hmm. write the one-liners, and it's the costume designer's job to figure out what kind of tuxedo he's going to wear or what kind of champagne he's going to drink or something. That's not the director's job necessarily. But Kerry Fukunaga has shown that he has an, an, an insane amount of style mm-hmm. and was able to elevate True Detective beyond just being kind of a fun procedural Sounds of the Lambs riff into something that captured the imagination of the whole country for, you know, two months or something. Absolutely. Like, that was impressive. And, and you can see that they, they, there was no way to ever replicate that because you didn't have that visual quality that was so important to the show when it, when it launched. Uh, so I think he's a great choice. I, do I think it's going to be the best uh, of the series with Daniel Craig? No. I don't either. But I'm glad that it's not Sam Mendes again, and not because Sam Mendes did a bad job with Spectre. I think he was just he just didn't have anything else to say about James Bond at that point. Yeah, I think Skyfall was it's that double edged sword. I'd love that movie. I thought it was I, I do too. I think it's so great. so good. But to your point, like you make a movie that is that successful on every conceivable level, makes over a billion dollars, and yeah, they're gonna want you back, but it doesn't mean to your point that you have more to say because maybe in, in yeah, in retrospect, he made his Bond movie. Yeah. And then now, you know, I, I don't blame him necessarily either for going back and maybe trying to mine it for more gold. But yeah, I think it also ran up against the fact that it was, you know, an anniversary bond, like what the 25th bond. And they were trying to do all these. This is a serious bond. And yet we're also going to do these winky kind of kitschy references to older bond stuff. And it was two things that were kind of diametrically opposed in some ways. So right. it, kind of, it was tough. Again, it's difficult to carry the weight of a thing like that. Yeah. and to land the plane without killing everyone. And this is especially true for Spectre, which unfortunately, unfortunately in the sense that it was difficult to pull off, they had to include Spectre in it and Blofeld. And so then it becomes, we haven't had the access to these characters or this, this iconography, this major element of the Bond franchise since the 70s. So because we haven't owned the rights to this character, we really have to figure out how this is going to work and what it's going to be like. And I'm sure it was very difficult or bittersweet for the Broccoli family to figure that out because they'd been at war legally with Kevin McClory, the co-writer of Thunderball, since the 70s and yeah. the 60s over the rights to Spectre. So finally getting it and finally having that and having to to do a postmodern Bond about maybe the least modern aspect <laughs> of James Bond, which is a a global syndicate of terrorists who, you know, in the Bond franchise and the books and stuff are holding the world ransom with nuclear weapons. Like that's, it's become such a cliche, yeah. all that stuff. And, and Austin Powers and everything, yeah. Dr. Evil, like it's. I don't know, you know, if, you, if you're if you Sam Mendes and you want to make this postmodern James Bond movie, 
that inverts everything and you capture the bad guy in the middle and the end of the movie it takes place at his his house you know and he's <laughs> yeah. home alone and stuff how do you then say okay we're gonna do we're gonna try to do that again but you're also gonna have to use blofeld and you're also gonna have to you know use specter and you're gonna have to have these scenes with a bunch of people in a shadowy conference room <laughs> and it's gritty about, and grounded yeah. and yeah it's a lot it's a wonder it worked for whatever degree that it did just considering all of that, those different kind of boxes it has to check. And in yeah. some ways, maybe it's going to end up, you know, depending on maybe how this next one goes, that Leia Sadu might be the most interesting thing to come out of it. Because her, <laughs> you know, her yeah. character's pretty, her character could be interesting. I don't know. I guess it kind of hinges on the second half of characterization. You know, it's uh, it's a exercise in futility sometimes. We've already been talking so much, but I will say one, one last thing yes. about James Bond, which is that if you thought the last movie had a lot of baggage... This one has even more, because this is supposed to be Daniel Craig's last James Bond movie. Yeah. And nobody before him, and probably no one will after him, have a a run in the character that had this level of continuity, this level of character development. This has to be a satisfying ending for James Bond. In the same way that The Dark Knight Rises had to be a satisfying conclusion for the character of Batman. (laughs) This has to be a satisfying conclusion for the character of James Bond. And what is a, uh, what is a happy ending, or not even a happy ending, what does a satisfying yeah. ending mean for a character that has never had an ending before? Yeah, no, that's a great call. And I'm, and I'm very intrigued by whatever they perceive that to, to constitute, you know. Yep. That I'm intrigued by. And that's as great a way to end this show as anything. What, if anything, would you like to plug before we wrap it up? Well, we've plugged everything, really. You know, you can follow me on Twitter at Dave underscore Schilling. I'm going to take a break from Twitter other than promoting things <laughs> through this, this yeah, accursed election cycle. But uh, I would love if for all of you out there that are listening to this to, to listen to Full Court Chat with Dave Schilling. It's an, it's an improv comedy podcast, so don't expect, you know, me talking about Star Wars on that. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's, it's a great yeah, show. It's, it's very silly comedy, and, and that's where I, I'm the happiest is, is performing and doing, doing comedy and stuff. But I also am doing which what we talked about, which is a Mandalorian recap podcast for Starburns Audio that comes out every Friday. We'll talk about the episode that dropped the day the night before. And we're going to do that for the next few weeks, I guess, eight episode run for this season. So we'll be at it for the next couple months. And uh, I, I co-host with Jason Smith, who is the CEO of Starburns Audio. So he's not only my co-host, he's also my boss. <laughs> so I, I have to be nice to him. But yeah, please listen to those on whatever podcast platforms you use. Perfect. Thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Of course. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening. Take care. Wear a mask. Be kind. Thank you again. Bye.